Hello, this is John Pollitz, Dean of Library Affairs at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and your host for Saluki Stories. Today, we are talking with Jeffrey Leving, 1974 graduate from the SIU Radio and Television Department. Jeffrey is the founding attorney of Jeffrey M. Leving, LTD, a Chicago law firm specializing in family law and father's rights. Jeffrey was on the legal team that reunited Elian Gonzalez with his father in Cuba. But no one can tell Jeffrey's story better than him. So let's dive right in. Jeffrey Leving, I graduated with a Bachelor of Science in 1974 with a major in radio and television. All right. So if you were to name any, any single individual, what person had the greatest impact on your SIU experience? Uh, Mark Berger. He was my best friend, a roommate at SIU. We grew up together, and we both came from struggling families without the financial resources, yet we both uh, made it through college. I became a lawyer, and he became a, uh, uh, a podiatrist. And he had a lot of um, a lot of uh, uh, a lot of good experiences with him academically at SIU. Okay, great. And and so, what else? You said academically, but he's your roommate. Uh, are you still in contact with him? Uh, he passed away very unfortunately. Oh, I'm but, sorry. Uh, uh, we were we were close friends until the day he passed away, but he struggled uh, to get through financially, and he worked very hard. and It was it was a positive influence on me, and it motivated me to work hard too, because when I went to SIU, I not only was a full time student, I also worked uh, and supported myself and put myself through SIU. That's that's great. Wonderful. Um, is there any particular event that stands out in your memory as being crucial to your time here at SIU? Well, there were many. One, one event was assisting in the production of a documentary entitled A Wheelie in an All-American City, uh, which was an important documentary to me concerning the accessibility of the Southern Illinois University campus to wheelchair students. And this was very important because this was before the Americans with Disabilities Act, which didn't take effect until 1991. Very important documentary. And after the documentary was was aired, I uh, was fortunate to have an art show because my hobby's always been painting and printmaking uh, at the university. And many of the attendees at the art show uh, were wheelchair students that I had met while assisting in the production of the documentary. Wow, that's that's really something. Yeah, because this is a real important place for uh, for uh, handicapped accessibility, isn't it? Exactly. Wonderful. All right. Was there any piece of advice you received while enrolled here that was a big influence on your life? 
never give up hope. Never give up hope? When I, I went to SIU, exactly, never give up hope. And I never, and young lawyers who I'm mentoring, I tell them the same thing, never give up hope. And I've never given up hope. When I helped reunite Ilian Gonzalez with his father in Cuba, everyone told me I would lose no way would Ilion ever be reunited with his father in Cuba. I never gave up hope, and uh, he was eventually reunited with his father. So that's important to me. And I believe the first time I heard that was from a friend of mine in SIU, a fellow student and a friend, Bob Weiss, who eventually became the executive producer of the Blues Brothers, and he became very successful in that industry. Really? Wow. Amazing. How and that's a great that's great advice. What was what would you say your fondest memory of SIU is? Well, the, the fondest memory, right to say memories, uh, had to do with not just the academic experiences, but the socialization, the social experiences, because it was it was a great place. Uh, when I wasn't studying, when I wasn't working, there were a lot of genuinely brilliant and decent people and friends I, I, I met while I was while I was a student there. Uh, it was just a great a great place, and there were free activities because I had no money. Yeah, I, I went into a local bar uh, in Carbondale, and back then I, I really didn't. Uh, money for entertainment but i had enough money to go in and buy a glass of beer and i walked in and ario speedwagon was playing <laughs> in, in this in the establishment wow yeah for free for free and I, I thought that was fantastic and they ended up becoming very successful they did they did yeah um and then how about uh your artwork you kind of mentioned that Well, I, I really enjoyed uh, showing my artwork at SIU and the exhibit I had there uh, where my artwork was was displayed was very important. Uh, I have an online gallery. I still paint now and, and make prints. It's, it's a hobby, and it's a lot of fun, and very enjoyable. And uh, there are a lot of friends of mine that have my artwork. I have clients. And I've given some of my artwork away. Uh, when I was on President Obama's National Finance Committee, when I served on his National Finance Committee, I gave him one of my paintings. And I mm -hmm. hope he was glad to accept it. He accepted it. I don't know if he, uh, I hope he liked it. And uh, Senator Mark Kelly was visiting me in my law firm. And I gave him a copy. Uh, I have a radio show gave a copy to Queen Latifah, well, not a copy, but I gave her one of my paintings, an original painting, not a copy. And that's uh, a radio show I host uh, every Saturday morning. And I could not be hosting or have the capability of hosting certain skills in the radio and TV department at SIU. And I host that show and it's a lot of fun. And, uh, my online gallery, just so I don't, you know, forget to give you the the uh, the domain name. It's yeah. lovinggallery.com. and I also have an Instagram, 
uh, Instagram account to help promote LevinGallery.com. Wow. Okay. Well, maybe we'll get, I don't know how we'll top, uh, how this podcast will shoot anybody higher than, uh, Barack Obama and, and Queen Latifah and Mark Kelly, but maybe we'll get you some, uh, some art sales. This is, we've talked to some other, we've talked to other artists before too. So, so you, do you think your time at, at, uh, SIU added to this, your eclectic interests, you've got radio and television, you do a radio show, you're in the courtroom, uh, as a lawyer and also you're a painter. How did that help? Or, or were you, did you know how, I mean, you know, were your interests at wide, uh, coming in or, or was it, uh, fostered at SIU? Uh, these interests were greatly fostered at SIU. Uh, I, SIU was critical to fostering these interests. And what's interesting, uh, I recently gave a very small sculpture of mine as a gift to uh, Richard Hunt, who's a very well-known yeah. sculptor, very, very well-known. I was visiting him in his studio recently. The, it was... Uh, you know, it was great uh, visiting him. Yeah, I'll bet. And you gave him a piece, huh? How nice. Um, yeah, and I, I hope he, uh, I hope he likes it. He, he seemed to uh, put it on a table in his studio, and I hope it's still there, uh, so it's displayed for. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. That's nice. Yeah. Um. He actually, uh, I interviewed him for this, uh, podcast too. So you're, we've got a couple of connections here. How, how nice. He's a wonderful artist and, and very talented. Isn't he? yeah, he's, he's, a, he's an incredible artist. Uh, and when I was in his studio, he showed me a gigantic and a powerful sculpture. He, created uh for the uh obama uh presidential center uh, and it hasn't been delivered there yet but i had the opportunity of of, of viewing it in his studio it's just very powerful wonderful wonderful now let's getting back to siu is there anything you would change about your time at siu if you had a, the chance to do it all over again when I graduated from SIU, SIU did not have a law school. If SIU had a law school, I would have been very interested in attending. Uh, unfortunately, I had uh, the honor of visiting SIU's law school recently, and it was a great experience. It's a great academic institute. And what's interesting is... In my law practice now, and in my broader advocacy for fathers, I've effect my education at S. Also helped me in my appearances on national television shows such as Oprah some time ago, Line, the Today Show, CNN, CNBC. And as a lot of 
my the skills I developed and my experiences, both academic and non-academic at SIU, helped me in those appearances. It helped me grow professionally. Wow, that's great. That's great. I love to hear that. I love to hear that. Could you share any uh, remembrances of the town of Carbondale and the surrounding area when you went to school here? I, I did live in Carbondale when I went to SIU, but I also, at one point in time, lived in Murfreesboro. And Murfreesboro was just very pleasant. I used to ride my bicycle to uh, the SIU campus in Carbondale every day, and it was just very peaceful to me. And, and those are things that are difficult to do in downtown Chicago. Uh, I was riding my bike recently, and I was almost run over by a car, so I don't think oh I'm going to be yeah. riding my bicycle anymore in Chicago. Right. I may have to wait till I'm back to SIU to get on a bike. <laughs> All right, we'll get, we'll bring you down here <laughs> for that. That'll be great. All right, so let's talk about your career after Carbondale. Now, uh, I know that your, your, your focus now is on father's rights and bringing families, keeping families together. Can you talk about how, how you became so focused on that area? When I uh, graduated from law school, I needed to make a living and support myself. My first job was a federal tax law editor for Commerce Clearinghouse. And I remember I paid $14,500 a year. It was a full-time job, and it was a great learning experience. I sat behind the manual typewriter all day long typing. Huh. And I remember when they brought electric typewriters in, into the office, and I was thinking to myself, Wow, now I have to learn how to use an electric typewriter. This is going to be a real challenge. <laughs> so it was interesting. <laughs> and uh, after that, I worked for Chicago Volunteer Legal Services Foundation, practicing law and going to court because I always wanted to be a litigator. I wanted to go to court. Yeah. Um, I shouldn't say always. I always wanted to be a litigator as a lawyer when I became a lawyer. Uh -huh. um, and um, I, uh, I learned a lot representing indigent clients. My clients were all poor, struggling, and uh, I was uh, their advocate fighting for justice for them. It was a great experience. And after that, I ended up going out on my own and started my own law practice. And uh, while litigating for CVLS, I, I, I saw what I considered gender bias in the system. I, I, I felt there were injustices, uh, and I wanted to make a change. I wanted to change and eventually change uh, the system so everybody would have a fair shot at justice, and justice wouldn't be a luxury only the rich could afford or justice would not be something that would not be obtainable for someone because of their gender or another reason. There shouldn't be any obstacles for anybody seeking justice. And that, that was a big motivator of mine. 
I see. Yeah. Yeah. And what about, uh, people who are incarcerated? How does that affect families? Well, I've represented incarcerated fathers. Uh, I represented a, uh, a father who was formerly a member of the U S house of representatives who was incarcerated and I fought for him while he was incarcerated and kept him in touch with his children. And uh, now he's no longer incarcerated and he, he's a, a great father. Uh, but I believe everybody, everybody is entitled uh, to due process and equal protection under the law. I had one client who I fought for who was incarcerated and it was a terrible, uh, uh, terrible case. And while he was incarcerated, I felt he wasn't getting the necessary medication he needed. He was a disabled Vietnam vet that served in our military, fighting for our freedoms. And uh, due to his own disabilities, he uh, fell on hard times and ended up incarcerated. And I felt he was going to die while incarcerated because I feared he wasn't getting his medication. And I remember going to court and I was able to get a court order uh, where the judge ordered him to be released. Uh, and uh, I was right at Cook County Jail Friday night. I brought the court order in and facilitated his release. And I drove him to Northwestern Hospital. Uh, and I believe that saved his life. Wow. And I left him at yeah. the hospital and he lived. But I remember walking him out of the jail and his feet were gigantic. They each one looked like they were the size of a of a watermelon. I mean, he could barely walk. I had to help him walk. And I was just thinking, thank God I was able to get that court order in time because I feared if I hadn't, he wouldn't have survived the weekend. So if somebody is incarcerated, uh, they still need to be treated with humanity. And so, uh, sometimes I feel uh, dogs and cats in the anti-cruelty society are treated better than uh, some humans that are incarcerated. And that's something that's uh, bothersome to me. Yes, yes. So let's talk a little bit. You, you, you mentioned the Ilian Gonzalez case. And could you give people a little background on that and your role in that? Many years ago, there was a little boy in Cuba, Ilian Gonzalez, and uh, his mother and her boyfriend attempted to bring him in a little boat from Cuba to the U.S. Well, they never made it. The, uh, the, the boat sank. His mother drowned. But miraculously, little Ilian, who was only three years old, somehow survived and uh, it was a miracle and he ended up in florida and there was a, a, a major legal battle fighting for ilian gonzalez and my role was uh supporting the reunification of ilian uh to to his father in cuba which eventually occurred and it was a, a very, very 
high conflict case, and I I uh, brought Ilion's um, two of his relatives to Washington D.C., and one of them uh, I I brought and represented while he testified in front of a panel of U.S. senators, which was related uh, to the issues involving the case, which was an interesting, uh, very interesting experience uh, with the right outcome, as, as I see it, because Ilion, I believe, needed to be back with his father. He, he His mother drowned. He only had one surviving parent, his biological father, in Cuba. And I believe this little boy needed to be with his surviving parent. And that's what I fought for. And uh, that's what happened. Wow. Wow. That was, I, that was a big case. So, and, and you won it. Way to go. Um, let's talk a little bit. The, the, the way we came to meet each other was that you had a collection of uh, John J. Audubon uh, prints and you wanted to remember your your universe, your alma mater, and we talked, and you donated over three hundred prints from John J. Audubon uh, to the library and the University Museum, and and it was a wonderful gift. It was the first uh, major thing that I've been involved with in my job here, and so we've been friends for about five years. And, uh, but you told me about how you got into collecting and it was a fascinating story. And so could you tell me a little bit about how you collect his art and historical, uh, documents and other pieces? Well, I've been collecting since I, I've been a little boy collecting everything. Uh, I remember my grandfather whom I lived with. Uh, he was a carpenter, and sometimes on job sites, people would throw away what they considered garbage, and he would uh, give these things to me. And that helped develop an interest in collecting. Uh, once he found a dime uh, it was uh, that uh, everybody thought was garbage and was discarded, and so I ended up with it. And upon some research, I discovered it was a one of the first dimes ever minted in the United States. Really? Uh, so that was an inter interesting uh, discovery. And I've just always been interested in collecting everything. I could walk down the beach and I'd see a, a rock, I'd pick it up. I'd wonder where it, wh wh where it came from. I'm just just fascinated uh, with with collecting. And my collections have... have uh, brought me a lot of pleasure and i remember obtaining a, a bible that was in pieces the spine had disintegrated there were bug holes in it and uh and uh i wasn't really sure what it was i had it restored and after doing some research discovered it was one of the first bibles it was the first actually the first edition uh of the venice uh, a Bible was published in 1475 in Venice, the first Catholic Bible ever punished, published in Venice, first edition. And in the Restoration, there was a book plate discovered in it and, it, and it looks like the Bible may have belonged 
to a uh, pope from the 1700s who was imprisoned by the French, and uh, this appears to be his pulpit Bible. So it ends up that this this is a very important historical find. And I'm always always looking for and searching for pieces of history that have been discarded or, or considered uh, of no value when these items could have great historical value that have been overlooked. Wow, that that's got to be fascinating. What what do you think is is that one of the most fascinating pieces you have found, or what what do you think is your most intriguing piece? Well, there's so many. I I, I don't know where to begin, but I, I did uh, years and years ago. I obtained a um, a manuscript handwritten uh, by Alex Haley. It was partially handwritten partially typed uh, about a Moroccan bandit that was may have been considered to have have no historical or literary value, but nobody bothered to turn it over and read what was on the other side, which I did, and I obtained it, and I still have it. On the other side is a partial manuscript of uh, Malcolm X uh, oh, in his wow. handwriting. And, wow. and so... Uh, but there's so many uh, interesting items. I, I just uh, to say what is most interesting because I'm so fascinated by all of them. Uh, I have a, a legal document uh, that uh, that I obtained uh, uh, that is in all of George Washington's handwriting, multiple pages, signed by him multiple times, and it's a legal document he wrote after fighting the French and Indian War, petitioning uh, the crown through a colonial governor for land, he believed he was entitled to, as well as his officers, for fighting and winning the French and Indian War. And this document is very historical, and I believe this document may have been a motivator uh, for him to change his direction from being a loyal British soldier to becoming the president, the first president of the United States. Wow. That's, that is fascinating. So, um, how do you think this, I I know you also collect a lot of documents like that, historic documents. Are they, are they all, do they bring history? Are they all about U S history? I guess is my question. Well, most, most of these documents are about U S history. That's my my passion, but not all of them are. Uh, I, I have one document I obtained uh, signed multiple times in the handwriting of uh, of uh, of uh, a scribe that worked for the de Medici family, wow. and it's close to a hundred pages. And it's these are very secretive notes that took place when the de Medici family uh, were were meeting and debating. Uh, the choice of the next pope. It's centuries old, centuries old. And then also I have another document signed by Catherine de' Medici uh, when she was um, um, uh, the, um, I believe she was uh, the uh, uh, queen of uh, France. She went from Italy to France and three of her sons became French kings. And what's interesting was uh, Nostradamus was in her court and uh, he was um, 
a physician and uh, also um, uh, a predictor of the future. And uh, so that's yeah, uh, yeah. pretty interesting. Oh, yeah. What's next for Jeffrey Levick? Well, right now, I'm working on organizing these historical documents and putting them in a in a in order so they're cataloged appropriately. I'll bet that so yeah. it doesn't so it That'll doesn't keep take you busy, me, right? Right, so it doesn't take me uh, months to find one. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Uh, is there anything else you you like to remember about Carbondale? And then I'll probably let you go. Well, I I have a lot of fond memories um, from Carbondale, Murfreesboro, Southern Illinois University. But what's really important to me is when I was a, a youngster in Chicago, I always wanted to go to college, and I never knew where I get where would I get the money, how I would do it, and I just fe- felt that the opportunities afforded to me at SIU. Uh, were were instrumental in me molding my professional and even my personal life, and I I, I feel uh, a debt of gratitude to SIU in in the great benefits I uh, afforded to me as a student at SIU. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your Saluki story. It was great to talk with you and remember the times when we were both undergraduates at SIU. We hope that everyone listening will join us next week for more Saluki stories. This has been John Pollitz, Dean of Library Affairs at Southern Illinois University Carbondale, and your host for Saluki Stories. Our production would not have been made possible without the contributions of radio, television, and digital media assistant professor of practice, Jennifer Pape. Student editor-producer, Casey Davis-Rouse. And our music production team, Austin Davis and Dakota Holden. Go dogs! <laughs> <laughs>